to the audio event of the century, featuring two lifelong best friends. We love the Leafs. We love each other. But most of all, we love William Nylander. Welcome to the Buds All Day. Hello and welcome to the Buds All Day Podcast. I'm Sats Mundine here with Lebda's Legacy. How's it going, everyone? We're coming to you guys on a Tuesday afternoon following the uh, the Leafs' loss last night to the Los Angeles Kings. They lost 5-1 to one. now. This podcast really isn't going to be a game reaction podcast. kind of just a more general podcast. Going to talk about a few different topics going around Leafland right now. Now, Lebda, I know you were at the game last night, and that's part of the reason why we didn't record last night so so what were your thoughts after last night's game yeah I think um last night's game was a bit of a frustrating one for sure they definitely did not start well um in the game came out pretty flat LA was taking it to them in a bit in the second in the or in the first period sorry and then from the second on it was to be honest all Leafs quite a quite a few chances a couple missed from guys who don't miss cough Austin cough Matthews um, and a couple of really nice saves by Jonathan Quick. And then, you know, the Danelle goal was kind of whatever. And I think that was the turning point of the game. But if you're looking at it just from, you know, in the grand sense of the entire season, you can't really be too mad about the loss. Like the Leafs, for the most part, dominated the game. So it's one of those ones where, yeah, super frustrating that they lost and definitely adds to the frustration that I was there. And, you know, it gets you annoyed but if you're looking at the team it's not like all of a sudden things need to start changing and we need to blow everything up and we need to completely change what we're doing like we you know you play that game we win 80 times out of 100 well according to the deserve to win meter you're not far off they would have won it 74 percent of the time and and that seems about right like you said they i thought they controlled the game even even including that first period like i thought they were by the end of the period they were already the better team in the game and I mean, this is a team coming off a five game winning streak. And, and the way that you look at the reactions on Twitter and, and from Leaf fans, you, you'd think this was a five game losing streak coming in. Like people were saying what a bad effort it was. They're criticizing the bottom six. They're just, I just, I, I'm really happy with how the Leafs have played lately. Actually, you look at that effort against Boston on Saturday, they pretty much controlled that game. They, you know, they maybe they let their foot off the gas a little bit on the third period on Saturday, but it was probably their best game of the season. And that was to follow up a, a good game that we already talked about against the Lightning. I mean, the Leafs have really turned it around. If you look at that game against Chicago, like that was kind of being down 2 nothing in that game was the low point of the season. And since then, it's just been progressively better and better and better. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way the Leafs are playing right now. Yeah, definitely nothing to panic about. I mean, you can you can pick and choose what you want and kind of fit any narrative, but the fact is, yeah, we just went on a five-game winning streak and we should have won the game the other night. Um, but this is the NHL and bounces happen, luck happens, goaltending good and bad happens. So these things hap- like, happen. Um, so yeah, we're kind of back in the spot where, you know, we still need to see some more games to see where this team's at. But, we, you know, I made up my decision long ago that this is one of the best teams in the East. That certainly hasn't changed. Um, 
But yeah, some of the reaction was just ridiculous last night. Like I was on my on my car ride home looking at Twitter and like you said, you'd honestly think that this Leafs team hasn't won a game all season. You'd think the third line was the worst line in all of hockey and you know, you'd think that their fourth line didn't even show up and play. So I don't really understand what's going on in Leafland, especially about that third line, because to me, I think they're, you know, one of the better um third lines in their role in hockey, to be honest. I couldn't agree more with you, Lebda. They they're getting paid a combined four million between Kampf, Kasha, and Angval, and they have been thirteenth in the league in terms of expected goals percentage. So they are starting nine percent of their shifts in the offensive zone. So they are always starting in the defensive zone. They're always taking the puck from their end, and and somehow usually Kasha or Angval is just bringing it to the other end. And are they finishing? No. But they're they're just dominating play, and that's pretty much all you can ask for from a third line that's making four million. If we were a team, let's just say like a Montreal, where you don't have any high end forwards, anybody making north of you know seven eight million, yeah, you you are going to want a little more of a scoring punch from your third line because they're going to be getting paid, you know, upwards of eight nine ten million combined. But these guys are making four million, and they've given up one goal all year while scoring one. So people are complaining, oh, the third line's not scoring, but 1-1 is the exact same as 10-10. They're, they're not losing their minutes. They're playing against tough competition and they're coming out even. And that is that is more than all you can ask from that, for especially at that price. Well, I think uh, how, many, how many lines in hockey can have 10% ozone starts against, like you said, good competition? and end up playing even. There's not too many. And then on top of that, they're getting those ozone starts and people want to say, oh, they're producing no offense. And I mean, they're not putting points up, but we need to look at what we kind of define as offense because they're taking really garbage starts and moving it up into expected goals at 60%. Like that is producing offense in my mind. Maybe the puck's not going in, but I mean, that line's not there to put the puck in the net. That line is there to shut other teams down, to make sure that the puck goes from your zone to the other team's zone. Hopefully, you know, get a face-off or whatever, even if they change on the fly. And then Austin Matthews, John Tavares, Mitch Marner, William Nylander come in, and those who scoop up, and they get zoles because and they get the goals because they get better ozone starts because that, that line's doing all the dirty work and doing the tough toughest thing in hockey, which is getting it from your zone into the other team's zone. That's exactly it. They're they're making life so much easier for the stars. Those four guys, we've said it a million times, they're making 40 million. That is 10 times what the third line is making. So yes, we're going to be relying on those guys for offense. And guess what? The stars have been providing it in spades lately. Now, you just like you said it. If if they're they're taking the puck on a defensive zone and bringing it to the offensive zone, Tavares and Matthews this year, they've had over 70% offensive zone starts. So those are the guys that we're going to rely on scoring. And just because the Kasha line isn't scoring doesn't mean that they're not serving a purpose because on Saturday they play, you know, they play a few minutes against Boston's second line, some against Bergeron's line. If the if they're shutting down the other line, that's just as valuable as scoring. And you're not only are you kind of fast forwarding the clock so we can get to our better players, you're also giving them easier matchups. So honestly, I for for my money, this is Definitely in terms of value, one of the top five third lines in the league. I've been very pleasantly surprised, like pleasantly surprised by David Kampf, especially. I just didn't, I didn't know he 
you know, we, we heard about him coming from Chicago. They, he's a defensive center, and they are one of the worst defensive teams, so he was a hard guy to grade. But I think this was a really good find by the Leafs for $1.5 million to have a guy who can eat 12, 13 minutes a night. And it's basically it's, – is it exciting to watch him? No, it's, it's very boring. Nothing happens, but that's okay. Even if we – say he was a, uh, a center with seven or eight points right now, but instead of scoring one goal and giving up one while he's on the ice – they scored seven and given up 12. His stats might look better in a, you know, in a point sense, but that doesn't mean that he's performing better. And I think fans kind of need to appreciate him and that line as a whole a lot more. And then I think it also ties into that line has the purpose of being defensive. The fourth line needs to bring some offense. And while they haven't actually scored lately, I've thought that they've generated with Spezza, Simmons, and Richie, I feel like they've generated some of the best chances that our team has had over the last few games. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention about the third line too, and is their ridiculously low shooting percentage. Now that shooting percentage is going to be low for these guys, but whether you're going to see some more lucky bounces for those guys go in and things will even themselves out a little bit. And if, if this third line just keeps on doing what they're doing and they end the season exactly with what they're doing now with just a maybe even even a one percent increase in shooting percentage the narrative is going to be completely different around them but to that point too about the narrative like any time that the Leafs lose you're going to hear this issue brought up but it's just it's super unfair in my mind just because of how these guys are set up like they're clearly a shutdown line they're clearly excelling in that role and they're even doing better than I would imagine in that role so we just need um the, the top guys to score and those guys are going to have nights off. And when those guys have a night off, that's where you need some more offense from your fourth line. And yeah, to tag on what you said, I think that fourth line struggled to start the season, then got really, really good. But I think they're still just not quite there. Like Jason Spezza, you can obviously see he's still cream of the crop of NHL fourth liners. Wayne Simmons has fit really well. My real big question mark is Nick Ritchie and what I've seen out of him this year. I know they had a couple good games, but I, I think um, last night especially, like being there and seeing what Nick Ritchie does, like he's uh, quite, quite shocking to watch at times. He literally did absolutely nothing last night. Well, let me throw a stat at you though. Since he's been on that line, that fourth line has played 55 minutes together and they have a 56% expected goals. They end... You could see it. Um, which game was that? It was it was against Tampa when they interviewed Wayne Simmons at the intermission, and I couldn't believe it only said five minutes of ice time for him because two or three of the best chances were created by him. Now, last night, maybe Richie didn't create as much, but I actually think that that line has been creating a fair bit of offense. It just hasn't been going in, and, and Simmons especially has impressed me, but you do make a good point about Richie, and it kind of takes me into – one of the questions that we actually got from one of our Twitter followers about Nick Ritchie, and it was it was our buddy Golatelli. He said he's becoming an obvious scapegoat, which isn't entirely fair. But what do you do about Nick Ritchie? So Lev, I'm going to ask you, given what you've seen from him, personally for me, I would leave him on the fourth line because I think if you give them more time, a lot more of those chances are going to go in. But what are you doing with Nick Ritchie? I mean, the same thing. Like he he's going to be on the fourth line until at least the trade deadline. Uh, you're um, unless some kind of crazy trade happens in the meantime and you need to move him out. I just get worried about Nick Ritchie. Like, yeah, he's on the fourth line. If he's on the fourth line with Spezza and Simmons, like, like you've said, like they have been doing okay, but at some point they need to produce. 
And we know what Simmons is going to do, and we know what Spezza do is going to do at this point. Nick Ritchie, honestly, like he needs to start dominating that. Like he's making two and a half million dollars, and I know, like, oh, it's not fair to only label a player by their salary, but in the NHL with the salary cap how it is, your salary is basically what you're worth to the team. So if you're not performing up to your salary, that means you're a negative asset to the team, unless you're a team like Ottawa or Arizona where you're rebuilding and nothing matters. Um. But if this Leafs team, if you have Nick Ritchie and he's just only producing a little bit and he's making two and a half million dollars and he's not fitting in in the top six and he's not really, you know, taking that fourth line from being good to being an excellent, excellent fourth line, then uh, again, he's an obvious scapegoat, but I think he has to be one and I think he just has to be moved on. And whether you upgrade on your bottom pair D, whether you find an upgrade on your fourth line or whether you upgrade, you know, Alex Kerfoot at wing. Like I just think having that, that dead weight and salary there is just too much for the Leafs to justify. If Nick Ritchie doesn't make another step up in his game. So the way I'm looking at Nick Ritchie right now is, is pretty similar to you. I think, I do think that with more time, he is going to score a bit more on that fourth line. Um, we saw, we've said it before, he he does thrive against weaker competition, and we've just seen that. He does, like, to my eye, he's actually been a lot more noticeable lately. Maybe not so much last night, but definitely in the other few games. Um, so I'm, he's not at the point where I'm taking him out of the lineup, and, and I know that's not what you're suggesting. Um, I would basically just roll with him as it is, and if the time comes when when we do want to make a move for a, for a higher salary forward or something like that, he is probably the first guy that I would look to move out just to match salary because I think you could easily replace him, especially if you're adding another forward into the lineup, he's automatically been replaced and just a couple people shuffled down. Not to mention you have Ilya Mikheyev coming back. So even if Mikheyev comes back, we don't make a trade. The difference between Engvall and Richie, first of all, it might not even be in Richie's favor, but it's not a big difference. And actually, I really trust a guy like Engvall a lot more in a defensive role so, yeah, Nick Ritchie, if he really wants to stay on this team, is going to have to produce a lot more. But at the same time, he he hasn't been quite the problem that he was in the top six. No, he's definitely not a problem at this point. I, I, I really do understand where a lot of Leafs Nation's frustration is with Nick Ritchie. Like, you see the signing of Nick Ritchie, and the first thing you do is you either Google him or you, you look up his highlights on YouTube or whatever, and you see this guy that's throwing his body around. He's going nuts. Anyone touches anyone, he's dropping the mitts. Like He's sticking up for teammates. He's doing that. He can produce a little bit. He's a big body in front of the net that has decent hands there. And then you watch him as a Leaf, and, um, you know, I haven't seen any of that. I Like, I legitimately see a hockey player who's just going through the motions out there. So I don't know if he's just having trouble adjusting Maybe some of the pressure of being a Leaf is getting to him. Maybe, like, I don't know what's going on, but he just doesn't, he just, he doesn't look engaged in the game. And I think that's part of the reason why he got bumped out of the top six is Sheldon Keefe saw some of that. And now he's, he's obviously going to get an extended shot in the lineup. And I'm not even necessarily saying he deserves to move out, but I think if I'm Nick Ritchie, I'm, I'm got to start looking internally and start being like, okay, I got to start bringing some, some other things to my game right now. Well, well, the goals aren't going in. I'm doing some things right, but I got to get a little more engaged. I got to get a little more intense, and I got to I got to start doing some of the things that I did with 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 my previous teams because, like I said, he just looks just looks like he's going through the motions, and he's obviously has some talent there, and he can hang around, and he has excelled against bottom lines. So you can see glimpses of that, but I think he's just 
missing a little bit of that intensity. I think that can be said about a number of Leafs, especially during the start of games. But if you're on a fourth line, you just you don't have that that kind of room to to grow into games as much as some of the other guys will. Yeah, I think if Nick Ritchie wants to stay beyond the deadline with this team, he's going to have to kind of turn that fourth line and into something like what the Islanders have with uh, Sezikis, Clutterbuck, and, and Martin from a few years back, where they are just – like him and Simmons are just wrecking balls, hitting anything that moves. They are generating some scoring chances, doing that kind of stuff. I think that's what he's basically going to have to do to stay. Right now he has one point in 13 games. That's That's simply not going to cut it, so – We've seen the the flashes of offense. He, he's made some nice passes to Simmons to set him up for chances and stuff. If they can start finishing, that's part of it. But you you make a good point. He does need to be a little more engaged, and he kind of needs to be that threat where if something does happen to somebody on the ice, the other guys are looking around to Nick Ritchie to you know beat the shit out of him. Like like do that once. He hasn't. I haven't really seen any of that toughness. He has. He's had a few hits here and there that were nice, but. Nowhere near what what he should be bringing at that salary. Now, another guy who we got a question about was from one of our our favorite buddies, uh, Bites It, on Twitter. He said, when Mikheyev is back, is Kerfoot gone shortly after? What do you think happens if everybody remains healthy and Mikheyev comes back? Because somebody's going to have to leave the lineup. Um, I don't think it's Alex Kerfoot. I, I think Alex Kerfoot is probably there. Th- this is a really hard one because... Um, I think it's going to be Pierre Engvall, but I don't think Pierre Engvall at all deserves to be jumped, like shot out of the lineup. So hopefully this third line can continue to play the way they have. Hopefully Sheldon Keefe isn't a donut like a lot of you know people on Twitter and freaking out about the points of the third line. Hopefully he obviously sees the value and doesn't think that it's just David Kopp and Andre Kosh because I think Pierre Engvall is a perfect complement. Um, to that third line. Now McKayev could play on that third line too, but at this point, like if Eli McKayev comes back. It's Nick Ritchie. Like, it It has to be. So that's where, again, I said, like, Nick Ritchie is, you know, auditioning for a spot on this Leafs roster. And I, I think the way to do that is, again, showing that toughness, showing that he's going to be the one that's into the fight and the first one to lay hits. If, if the boys come out a little bit slow, Nick Ritchie on the fourth line is going to get them going with a big hit or a big big fight or even a big play, hockey play. So, I, I, again, I don't, I don't think it's Alex Kerfoot. Now, again, Alex Kerfoot is probably another one of those guys where, you know, he's a nice piece in that top six right now. Like he's filling a role, but he's probably far from ideal. So, and he makes three and a half million dollars. So he's probably another one of those deadline pieces where you're like, well, we're going to upgrade this team. That's an, that's an obvious one. So we'll see depending on the timing of when McKayev returns. But if it's not close enough to the deadline to where, you know, you make a move and you make a splash, I, I, th- I think it's pure Angval, unfortunately, but in my mind, it should be Nick Ritchie coming out. Yeah, sadly, I think you are correct that it will be Angval who comes out. I know there's quite a few Leaf fans, too, who don't like him. And it's I think it's kind of the Jake Gardner effect where you make 100 good plays, but you make one bad one and everybody remembers the bad one. I think Engvall kind of has a bit of that where he'll just make a stupid play leading to a goal or something. And people will forget all the times that, like we said earlier, he takes it from his own zone and drives it all the way into the other teams and, and doesn't get scored on. So I think he probably would come out for Richie, especially too, because maybe they're looking to trade Richie and you don't want to pull him out. And that, cause then it's, it's going to be really hard to trade the guy. So I'm kind of hoping Nick Richie can go on a bit of a shooting percentage heater here and either help the team that way or kind of work his way out. But there's definitely no chance Kerfoot comes out of the lineup. I think 
it is very possible that in game one of the playoffs, Kerfoot's not playing because I think if you're looking at getting a, a big name forward, we've said this a few times, he's probably after Nick Ritchie now the easiest, like the most likely salary to move. But Kerfoot makes that extra 3.5. You add him and Ritchie together, all of a sudden you're looking at 6 million and we don't even need a full 6 million given what, you know, teams can do with, with retaining half the salary. So Kerfoot stays for now. He, he's looking okay on that line with, with Tavares and Marner, but I think it, it'd be pretty hard not to look good with those two. Yeah, I think I think you definitely look at upgrading that top six for sure with Alex Kerfoot there. Um, like, And again, we say it all the time. We say it a lot with defensemen. Like, You need at least seven NHL defensemen. You do need depth in the NHL to win. Um, so maybe you just, you ride it, you replace Richie with McKay of one game, you replace Kerfoot Kerf- with, you know, McKay of one game, one game, John Tavares needs a sit. Like there is lots of things you can do, um, when he comes back. So I don't think there's any like real, real rush to make a move, but yeah, to your point too, like if teams have, um, a trade in, in the offer and, you know, let's say the value is about equal but the Leafs can give up Kerfoot and Nick Ritchie and match the salary and another team doesn't have to um, like retain the salary, then that could make the, or that could get the Leafs a better deal at the deadline too. So again, like when we're looking at guys to trade and we're looking to upgrade, I think Kyle Dubas definitely wants to upgrade that thing. And then, yeah, we're looking at Alex Kerfoot, Nick Ritchie and Justin Hall at this point too, as being the guys that you can move out for salary, replace either internally or you know, do a two for one and bring one guy in and one guy up from the from from the minors or up from the press box or whatever. So it's just it's one of those things where those guys are the ones that are going to get talked about a lot, and those are the ones who you know maybe aren't quite providing enough value for their contracts. So they're just the ones that are easiest to move because I, I don't see Ilya McKay going anywhere either. Um, so at least I hope he doesn't go anywhere because I think he's kind of in that pure Angwell category where. He's one of those guys where people don't really respect what he actually does for for this Leafs team, and it goes under the radar purely because he misses chances, but he's still one of those guys who's getting a ton ton of chances, and getting chances in the NHL isn't easy. Finishing them is even harder, but at least he's got half of the, that kind of scenario down. So, you know, it's another one of those things where it's super, super interesting. There's lots of options. gives us lots of things to talk about, and it gives Kyle Dubas lots of things to really – you know, think about. So again, hopefully we don't end up with, uh, with another situation where we have a Nick Foligno at the deadline and hopefully you can do something nice and provide a big upgrade to this Leafs team. But who knows? It's, it's kind of up in the air at this point. This Leafs team's very hard to read with what they're going to do going forward. I think this year makes more sense than any to go for a one-year rental, because if you look at the way the cap is situated next year with, you know, Jack Campbell getting a pay raise, wanting to lock Sandine and Lilligren up to deals that are more than one year. You know, ra- rather than signing Sandine for a one-year, one million, we, it would be nice to get him for four or five years at a, at a bit of a higher rate. Just the way the cap shakes up, it I wouldn't mind getting a guy with short-term who's just going to be here for one year. We don't have to worry about their salary next year. Philip Forsberg's the big one we always talk about, Thomas Hurdle. I think this year is as good as any to make a move like that. We've got the salary to match with Kerfoot and Richie. So it is going to be really interesting to see how Kyle Dewis plays the deadline. You don't want him to sell the whole farm because we do need to, you know, keep this engine churning for the next few years. But 
I would be totally fine with trading our first round pick again if it means getting a real difference making guy to kind of replace Kerfoot in that in that top six and make that Marner line like a truly elite level first line with him, Tavares, and another guy. Yeah, and that takes the Leafs from having one truly elite first line and, you know, one really, really good second line, potentially just a, you know, average to good first line to having two amazing first lines. And everything we talked about when we were talking about the third line taking pressure off, that just gets, you know, magnifying even more with how good those two lines would be. And yeah, to your point, like people kind of come out and say, oh, like, the Leafs don't have the prospects, they don't have this, blah, 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 to fill in and jump the gap. And it's like, yeah, because we're in that era right now where those Mark Hunter drafts that went so, so poorly for the Leafs, those guys will be coming through the lineup. So we're we're a year or two away from having all these really nice Kyle Dubas drafts, all these nice pickups in later rounds, second round steals, third rounds, you know, from Your those Toby guys. Nimelas, those yeah. kind of, Roni Hervinans, those kind of guys starting to actually – get through the system instead of, you know, six foot five guys who can't skate, but they, they have a hard slap shot. So Mark Hunter loved him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Leafs are at, you know, a little bit of an awkward stage right now where they don't have too many guys that are right ready to make that jump, but those guys are coming very soon. So yeah, I think, you know, draft picks are not that or not, um, so difficult to to move in a trade, even high ones, because of how good Kyle Dubas and his scouting team and his staff as a whole have been at finding late round picks because the Leafs have their top guys locked up for the next couple of years. They don't need to find that elite, elite talent in the draft. Now, obviously, it's helpful if you can find, you know, guys that fall down and become elite, elite hockey players, but they just need guys to fill gaps to come in and, you know, do what Michael Bunting's doing right now you know, fill in a third line, fourth line roles, like Jason Spetz is getting up there. Like eventually we're going to have to fill those roles with some younger guys. But again, like you get Thomas Hurdle and, or potentially a Philip Forsberg for a first round, a pick and, you know, a couple guys off our roster that just to move salary the other way, like you, you can't say no to a deal like that at this point. No, because I don't see a way, a real way in the next even the rest of these contracts for these guys that we have a much better roster. There's just not a ton of room to add. Even like if you think the salary is only going up a million, there's just not going to be that much more space where we can add. So right now, John Tavares, he's looking like a true first line center. Again, he leads us in points. He's 13 points, 13 games. He's got above 54% expected goals. He's having a great year and it makes you wonder what could have been if he hadn't gotten hurt last year, but it also makes you realize this is the year to go for it. The team, they got off to a slow start, but in my opinion, Muzzin and Brody, uh, they look like a nice pairing. The the stats would back that up. They have a very solid expected goals. If you let me pull it up here, they're, they're chilling at 57%, which is excellent facing top competition. I think this team is really moving in the right direction and it's time to make a move. And, you you said about having two first lines. I think that that Marner line, like with Tavares, they have looked like a first line. But yeah, if you take it a step further and you look at the the Nylander Matthews line, they've been incredible. Sixty four percent expected goals in eighty five minutes. I, the pucks haven't quite gone in because I think Matthews is still shaking off a bit of rust. I know he's got he's still at like a forty goal pace because he's Austin Matthews, but. I think once Matthews really fine-tunes his shot a little bit and he gets into full form, you know, in the next four or five games here, I think you could see an absolute explosion from the top six again. Yeah, and I think we had a little taste of it in the last, you know, 
week and a bit of you can see that just semi explosion, but it's still there's still some room there. Like you said, Austin Matthews is not quite quite there yet. He's still you know missing chances that he shouldn't miss. He probably missed three or four of them last night where he just roofed it over the net. He hit a post like stuff like that. So you get all those guys you know firing at the same time, then it's really really scary. And if you can add a really big impact forward to that lineup. Again, it just gets even scarier. And then the Leafs, we talked about it all off season. We talked about it a little bit, you know, during the playoffs and even during this season. Like, they better have learned their lesson from that Nick Felino trade. Because there's no doubt in my mind, and I know you're the same way, Sats, and not to bring up old wounds, but if Taylor Hall was on this Leafs team instead of Nick Felino, I can guarantee you we won because we wouldn't have had that huge drop off from, you know, going from John Tavares playing with William Nylander to Alex Kerfoot centering our second line. Because if you have Taylor Hall on that wing, then the drop-off is, you know, goes from being an elite, elite first line to being just a, a good, you know, first line or a really, really good second line with, with Taylor Hall and William Nylander on the wings, even with Alex Kerfoot as the second line center. So hopefully Kyle Dubas has learned some lessons and learned that, you know what, all this role stuff, all this intangible stuff, sure it matters, you know, in the room. But that's not what we need to go and get at the trade deadline. We don't need to go and get a guy like that. Like the Leafs penalty kill is good right now. They have, you know, quote unquote, the team toughness now. We haven't really seen it from Nick Ritchie and Wayne Simmons and stuff like that. But it is there. You have the leadership. And again, Wayne Simmons, Jason Spezza, those old heads. John Tavares is, you know, he's your captain. He's one of those guys too. Um, You know, you have your defense. Like there's lots of things. So you just go out and you get the absolute best player you possibly can for your budget and for the prospects you're willing to pick up and you figure out the rest later. So like I said, hopefully Kyle Davis has learned that lesson and hopefully that forward is uh, a Philip Forsberg or a Thomas Hurdle because that would really, really get me a going. Yeah, we need we need a, a high-end scoring talent. We've seen it every year. What It's not the defensive capabilities that go wrong for this team oftentimes. It's that the scoring dries up. So it's nice to get that team toughness and stuff, but there just aren't that many Tom Wilsons or Matt Kachucks out there. So you're better off just taking the guy with skill. David Kampf is performing the role that Nick Foligno kind of would play as. like a sh- like That's the purpose of a Nick Foligno is to you know shut a team down defensively. And we already have that with our third line. So, yeah, I think you really stack that top six, and it could be a dangerous, dangerous team. Now, one thing, too, since we're always ragging on it, 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 I do want to credit Sheldon Keefe a little bit for the look of the power play last night. We got a really nice goal, uh, that Tavares one, and it all started with something we've asked for for I don't know how long, Lebda. Matthews and Nylander on the one-timer sides and Marner down low. I just it – was, it was poetry in motion for me. I was, I was in love. It was a picture-perfect goal, and we talk about it all the time. The hardest pass for a goaltender to read in hockey is one coming from behind the net because he has to go from looking behind him to looking in front of him. It's super difficult to read, and with how fast these guys pass and with how fast they shoot, like that John Tavares goal was in the back of the net before Jonathan Quick turned his head. And it's just such a such a dangerous play, and you know that's just one option because I find when you don't have someone below the net, you might as well not have someone in the bumper either because he's kind of useless because he's just so easy to cover because everyone's you know above the goal line. The defender doesn't have to reach out or step out or get out of position 
um, to cover someone down low or to put a little bit of pressure on the puck. And then the winger goes over to cover the, you know, the guy in the one-timer slot and, you know, the guy in the middle opens up and then that's an option. John Tavares starts popping goals from the center. All of a sudden, William Nylander, Austin Matthews are open. Then it's just, it's just a cycle where you go from hammering the guy to in the slot to hammering the two guys on their one-timers and, you know, it can just lead to beautiful, beautiful things because defensemen, you know, has, someone has to be open. That's why a power play is so dangerous because one guy's always open. And if you can make sure that that guy's open and finding him consistently and from dangerous areas in the ice, then again, the talent's there. It's just been, you know, I think hindered by coaching and by tactics a little bit. But if they continue to do that and <laughs> and continue to uh, to perform that and keep getting dangerous looks like that, then again, I think we'll see a little bit of a resurgence on the power play. Obviously, it's too early to make a definitive statement on that, but I really like what I saw from that power play last night. Yeah, and they even scored some goal, a couple power play goals against Boston too. So I think part of it also is just getting that mental hurdle out. Like, hey, we can score on the power play. And the floodgates are kind of starting to open, but it just, it seems hilarious to me that it took them so long to realize that putting your best passer in the area where passes are the most dangerous would work. You have Mitch Marner down low with multiple passing options. He's got excellent vision. He can thread a pass with the best of them. Let him choose between John Tavares and Austin Matthews. Defenseman's got to pick his poison and boy, is it poisonous for the other team at this point. Now we've already covered a uh, a couple questions from our from our followers on Twitter. We did have another one from Golatelli. He asked which of the Leafs' depth goalies should play the next time Jack can't go. So we had um, Joseph Wall got called up the other day, and everybody's favorite Michael Clutchinson. Those are kind of the options right now. Although we do got uh, Calgren and the Miners there too. So Lebda, over this next four weeks without uh, Pe- Peter Mrazek in the lineup, who are you looking to as the Leafs' backup, and how much would you like them to play? I mean, I think the only answer there is really Michael Hutchinson. Maybe you give Joseph Wall a game to see, but I mean, I don't have very high hopes for Joseph Wall at this point. So I think, uh, you know, it sucks, but I think you just got to ride Hutchinson and hope maybe he has a streak like he did last year where he just plays out of his mind a little bit for the Leafs. And I mean, as far as how much I want him to play, to be honest, like as much as possible like there's no really need in my mind to exert jack campbell too much i think you know we we roll with uh, you you treat michael hutchinson like he's peter mrazic basically you know you give campbell the starts where you give your starter and you throw hutchinson in where you go with the backup maybe one or two more where you're not completely rotating them but there's no need to burn out your goalie this early on in the season with the way the leafs have been playing with where they are in the standings like i think we can afford a couple of Michael Hutchinson games. You just got to hope your offense absolutely balls out and bails Hutch out a little bit. But yeah, I, I, I see Jack Campbell being far, far more valuable later on in the season and come playoff time than he is right now for the Leafs. So there's no need to really burn him out and risk having two of our starters go down injured. I agree. And, and to, to begin with the, with the selection of goalie, it's to me, it's gotta be Hutchinson. You look at the stats for Joseph Wall the last three years for the Marlies, 880, 892, and 895 save percentages. So I don't see how he's all of a sudden going to get better in the NHL. He had worse AHL numbers than Hutchinson has had in the NHL. So let that sink in a bit. You're obviously, you know, you're playing Hutchinson a few games. You're going to lose a game that you should win. That's just going to happen. You just have to accept it. But like you said, we, we're, we're too good of a team, especially when you look at the way that this um, division is shaking up right now with, 
you know, no threats out of the big four to make the playoffs. As long as you can beat that fifth place team in the, the Metropolitan Division, you should be able to cakewalk into the playoffs. So the Morazic injury is supposed to be four weeks. The Leafs had, including last night, they had 14 games over those, those uh, four weeks. So basically a game every other night. And three of them are back-to-back. So I think you automatically, you're giving Hutchinson a game in those back-to-backs. And then I would probably like to make the split something like, you know, eight to, no, nine to four, nine to five, something like that. So, so Campbell's not playing more than really twice a week. He doesn't, we, we do not need to burn him out and get an injury out of this. If we, if we lose a game on a Tuesday to Minnesota because we had Michael Hutchinson in, so be it. It's a lot better than losing in round one to Boston because Michael Hutchinson's in there. Yeah, exactly. Or it's a lot better than Jack Campbell. You know, you play Jack Campbell too much in a week and he tweaks something and then all of a sudden you're out, you know, for four weeks with Mrazek and Jack Campbell out as opposed to just, you know, okay, maybe we're going to lose this one because our goalie sucks, but at least we still have Jack Campbell for the majority of the games going down. So yeah, no, no real, real need to, to, to exert these guys at all. I mean, Michael Hutchinson, he's still, he's still a, you know, an elite he's got a 905 for his like, career. He's not, like, it's not like you're putting in some guy from, from house league or an emergency backup. Like he should be able to win you at least a couple games and he's going to lose you a couple games. You deserve to win too, but it, it, it is what it is. Like you just, you live with it, you move on, you, you, you minimize the risk on Jack Campbell as much as you can going forward. Yeah. We've already had one, one loss to the sharks because of Michael Hutchinson. I mean, it is what it is. He had a nine nineteen last year. Like it's it's kind of a crapshoot, but nine oh five for his career. So you just gotta hope that that it's one of the nights when our uh, when our stars really show up. Now the last question we had was from Wendell Maniac. He said, Attention to detail remains elusive. Not dropping back for a pinching D man, poor one timers, poor breakout passes. So many games decided by one goal. Why year after year do these things not improve? Now I have to agree with with a lot of that in the sense that I can't tell you how many times earlier in the year, especially on the power play, it's just the pass is just a hair off. It's just not crisp early in games. I feel like that's kind of why we were getting dominated early in the season with, you know, the other, like it just, the, the early part against Tampa, it was just Tampa was so crisp. Every pass was so fast. They were coming through the neutral zone. And it just felt like we were kind of skating in mud, putting in a foot behind somebody and things like that. Uh, but I will say, I think it has gotten a bit better, especially the last few games, definitely against Boston where, yeah, we haven't started, uh, you know, in an ideal manner, but I think we are starting a little bit earlier with each game. Earlier in the year, you know, halfway through the second, we'd show up. Then it was right at the start of the second. Then it was 10 minutes in. Hopefully, you know, in a month or two, we can start on time like old Mikey Babcock says. Yeah, this is kind of a tough question because it's one of those ones where sitting, you know, where we're sitting, it's hard to answer. Like, why these guys are professional athletes. Their coaches are professional coaches. Like why can't they get, you know, their details of the game dialed in? Like they have the time to do it. They have the skill level to do it. Why doesn't it happen? And you know, it's I like, I can't possibly answer that. Unfortunately. Now, one of the things I do want to say is it, it is really frustrating. And, and there's just zero excuse in this league for not having a bigger effort than the other team. Um, and when you bring the effort and you have the skill, that's when you become a truly dominant team. And that's when you win back-to-back Stanley cups, like the Tampa Bay lightning. And for whatever reason, I don't like, we talked, we talked about it a little bit and it's just, it's still not there. 
and it's something they should have learned a couple years ago with all their first round exits. But again, they're still quote unquote learning. Um, and I think again, like I don't, I don't want to be the guy who blames the coach for everything, but, and I don't think Sheldon Keefe is a bad coach. I'm just, I'm going to make those two statements and then contradict myself. But th- this is where Sheldon Keefe has to get better. He has to drill it into his team about these details, about these things. And he has to get his team ready to play. It is a coach's job to make sure the players are ready to play. And again, like people always say, oh, it's up to the players to start on time. But like it's up to the coaches to get the players to start on time. Like and give them all the tools they need and give them everything they need so that they can go out and play hockey and know that their systems are going to work and and all this kind of stuff. And I think Sheldon Keefe does a good job at the actual systems and the actual philosophy about how he wants his team to play hockey. I just think he still hasn't got these guys like running through brick walls and like firing on absolutely all cylinders. And, you know, maybe he never will, but I think that's something, again, he really, really needs to work on is getting these guys actually truly motivated and actually ready to play some hockey. Yeah, it's it's tough to know who really to blame when you're when you're not in the room. You can see an Amazon documentary. You can see all of that. But at the end of the day, we're not there. It's been a few coaches with these guys where they kind of have had this problem at times. Although I wonder if every team just kind of has this, maybe not to the greatest extent, but it's just kind of the bias of we watch the Leafs. So we see every game that they start badly. We think we think we're the only team that does it. But at the end of the day, I think it does. It falls on both of them. They just, they need to fix this by the end of the year. They need to make sure that game one of the playoffs, game two, game three, every game they're coming out and they're not, waiting until they're down one nothing to show up because we know they have the talent. We know they have the ability. They just have to show that they've got the, the mindset for it as well. And I've been encouraged lately, but still would like to see this team uh, do a little bit more to impress me before the playoffs. Now, Lebda, I am uh, – that about does it for me on this podcast. Do you have anything else you want to say? Yeah, I think we got everything that um, we needed to off our chest. Nice little summary. Answered some fan questions. Thank you guys very much for submitting those fan questions. We encourage everyone listening to do so over at our Twitter at Buds All Day Cast. Shoot us either a DM or, you know, reply to one of our tweets or whatever. Um, make sure you get involved because we like everyone who listens to get in, as involved as possible. So, yeah, again, that's at Buds All Day Cast on Twitter. Keep up to date with everything we got going on. Keep up to date with everything Leafs Nation has going on. Thank you guys very much for listening, and we'll see you all next time.